It is such a treat to be back after a COVID hiatus at this always phenomenal conference. And I'm so grateful today to get to interview Jeffrey Katzenberg and Sujay. Um, and, and I feel like you guys are the perfect way to start off this conference. Jeffrey, you're in so many ways emblematic of what is going on in Los Angeles right now. And the fact that you are a media mogul of media moguls, really you know, defined Disney for so many years, reinvented animation at DreamWorks Animation. And I was lucky to get to interview you throughout this process and then also interview you as you launched the very ambitious and very short-lived Quibi. And now to really understand what you're doing and where you see opportunity and tech. And that's where Sujay comes in. Sujay, you are not based here in LA, um, being up in Silicon Valley, but you have this fascinating partnership. And as Mark mentioned, many of you here may uh, associate Jeffrey with his many media, um, uh, many media companies that he has led, including, of course, Quibi, but are less familiar with the fact that you've very quietly built this very remarkable venture capital business at WonderCo. You're in Robinhood. You are in, uh, in OpenSea and Dapper Labs and also a lot of these security companies. So I think it's so interesting that after having this, this massive career in media, you are focusing in a very different direction. So why don't you just start off, Jeffrey, by giving a sense of what your investment thesis is at WonderCo and why, after all these years in media, you've decided to do this as opposed to go sail a boat somewhere. <laughs> um, well, so thanks, Julia. Um, I guess it starts uh, with the sort of moment of, um, uh, you know, moving on from DreamWorks and um, you know, work for me is like air, you know, if I, it's my happiness. And um, so sailing a boat was never in the, in the cards for me. And I'm not saying that's not for other people, but just not for me. I, I, I love work. And when I looked at the world uh, post DreamWorks and thought, what could a next chapter be? Um, it was clear to me that the place of greatest opportunity I think most incredible innovation uh, and where the, the entrepreneurial spirit was just, you know, so vibrant um, was in digital technology. And, um, and I realized that, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things is, you know, self-awareness is hard for, for anybody and, uh, uh, you know, for me as well. And, you know, I've always tried at least to be to know what I know, and more importantly, know what I don't know. And so wanting to head out into that world, um, I didn't know a lot. And so the first thing I did is, is I went out to try and find partners who know what I don't know. And that's how Sujay and I actually met up a couple of years ago. He had had an incredible uh, uh, run in uh, both as an uh, uh, investor, but more importantly as Drew Houston's partner in building out uh, Dropbox um, and uh, spent six years doing that. And as I was looking for a new career path, so was he. And we, that's when we met up, and that's what sort of sent us off on this uh, path that we've, we've been on the last couple of years, which has been really incredibly exciting, incredibly rewarding. Um, you know, we have found a lane for ourselves today, which I want to let Sujay talk about, which I think uh, has WonderCo on a, on, a, on a unique path and, and a big ambition and a big goal. Um, and honestly, I've never been more excited. 
I do think it's worth mentioning that Quibi was incubated at WonderCo, but was one of many investments. And we'll, we can talk about Quibi and everything you learned from that later. But why don't you give us a sense, Sujay, of what the sort of broader investment thesis is, how it works in terms of early stage versus later stage, and what types of companies you're most interested in? Yeah, so you know, when we look at the, at the investment world right now, the thing that I think everyone in this room knows is there's just an obscene amount of capital right? Chasing opportunities all in pretty much every market. And so the question for any investment firm is, what's different? You know, how do you give founders an edge that makes them more likely to be successful, right? Because every founder, despite whatever amount of hype is there around their company, is scared. Every single day, they're terrified that they're going to fail. And so the partner that they pick, it's all about, are you a cheat code for me that gives me a better chance of being successful? So what we do at WonderCo is actually two things. One is we create companies. And obviously, Quibi was one example, but we have a handful of others that are totally on fire. And when we meet founders, we talk to them about the companies we're building. And you know, honestly, they know that we're on the journey with them because we're doing it in parallel. And then they love the idea of us investing behind them as well. So that's how we do it. But talk to me about sectors. I mean, because you have a big presence in cybersecurity, Aura, $2.5 million company, which you've been very much partnered with them on building. You're also interested in the future of work. How do you think about the landscape right now in terms of where the opportunities are? So the last 10 years, we've seen crazy transformation across a bunch of categories. The wild thing is the next 10 years, I think it's going to be 10x. So that's the, that's the good news. Um, for us, we like to pick markets which are not necessarily obvious but where we have super high conviction that they're gonna be huge. So when we started doing cybersecurity investing was about 2017, 18. I think now it's become obvious that over the next 10 years, it's, I mean, I think there's probably more value capture, value creation that's gonna happen in security than pretty much any industry out there. Um, future of work is an area that we're, you know, in our, our partner Chen Li Wang ran the core product at Dropbox and in many ways Dropbox was the first kind of product led growth company. It was the first B2B freemium company um, and so, you know, we have a huge diaspora of folks that work for us that are populating all these companies. We love that. And then, you know, Jeffrey's like a superpower. You know, he's a magnet for pretty much any entrepreneur, but especially folks targeting consumer markets. And so we, you know, we meet and love meeting all these entrepreneurs and they love meeting Jeffrey in particular. And, you know, we, we pay really close attention to what the, t uh, the kind of transformational opportunities are there. So, Jeffrey, talk to me about what it means to be a partner to these companies. You know, obviously, you specifically incubated Quibi, but it sounds like for Aura, you're very much involved in the hiring. How much do you see your role as a partner to these companies? And, and talk to me about the cyber, the cyber ones in particular. Right. Well, I think that um, it's not one size fits all. So, um, for the companies that uh, we uh, have a, you know, either a majority stake or a significant stake in, our involvement in those companies is significant, and and uh, Aura, which is the biggest uh, investment we've made, which is a, a, a consumer uh, a cons uh, security um, uh, offering, is uh, one where Sujay actually was the CEO of the business at its founding a couple of years ago. Shen Li went, our partner went, went in and led product. Uh, and engineering for a year. I've actually been on the sales side of, um, you know, opening up doors for them and our uh, uh, B2B sales that we've been, we've been doing. So we each have a lane here and it's actually quite complimentary and we are able to actually give value to the CEO of that 
company, which is you know our partner, Hari, who you've met, who's a rock star. Um, on the other side of it, uh, you know, it's interesting today. I literally got woke up this morning and I got an uh, email from the founder of Deal, a company that we've uh, invested in early on, a phenomenal entrepreneur's company is on fire, and uh, asked today if I could help introduce him into uh, a couple of Fortune 500 companies where he's trying to get access to uh, the HR uh, leadership there in it, which I'm excited about doing because his product is fantastic. Uh, and I know I'm going to be doing a favor for them and for him. And I love making, I have a bottomless well of a need to sell. So give me anything I love <laughs> and let me add it. And uh, I'm happy to do that for these entrepreneurs. And obviously that's real value for them. Well, there are probably four or five people in the world that have Jeffrey's Rolodex. I guarantee you he's the only one willing to abuse that Rolodex for founders of startups. A, a huge advantage there. Um, talk to me about the NFT space. I think it's notable that you're in Dapper Labs. You're early in Dapper Labs and also in OpenSea. We were talking um, offstage about how there really does seem to be a nexus of energy around this next generation of NFT companies here in LA. What is the opportunity you see right now in that space? Well, I'm going to let Sujay talk about our investment there, but I, you know, for, for me... Um, you know, mine is just always comes from my own sort of uh, intuition about these things. And I don't know about anybody else, but, you know, probably the audience is too young. I collected baseball cards. And I, it's so, it seems such an easy leap for me to understand that in the same way that there was a, you know, a connection, an emotional connection to those cards and to accomplishing getting the right mix of them together and that they actually did have some value at some point in this. It just seems to make sense to me that for the things that kids value and all of us adults value, we all value today, the digital version of those things is real. Like that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm still waiting to see and to understand the values of some of the things around crypto, but NFTs is, I'm, I'm all in. And I think the media companies today are the next, are the ones who are the next ones that are going to actually understand and get, um, dive in here and get real value out of it. And that's here in Los Angeles. Okay, I went 12 minutes in a Jeffrey Kassenberg interview without talking to you about media. I, I'm very proud of myself for that. Okay, but, <laughs> let, but let's for, Sujay actually okay. talk about the, the we'll, we'll do and NFTs Robin. and I'll, I'll go into my media question. Well, I mean, I think, Jeffrey, I, I think you actually nailed it. I mean, you know, it'll be a huge surprise to all of you, but I was, I was actually a nerd in high school, and I was uh, very early to Magic the Gathering, and about three months in, my parents made me sell, or actually throw away, all of the, you know, kind of alpha version stuff that I had, which now I think is probably worth like eight or nine million dollars if I had not thrown that away. So NFTs, having a, having a permanent connection to these things would have been much better. No, our investment, so we invest early in these companies. We pick, we pick people. One of the things, you know, what, a question that uh, came, you know, three or four years ago when we were getting Wonderco off the ground was, what does Jeffrey Katzenberg know about investing in startups in tech? And the answer is, well, if you take the tech part out of it, he knows a ton about people. And for all of you who invest in startups, it's all about the people. The idea pivots like 99% of the time. Almost nothing we've invested at at the beginning is what it became. But the person is who kind of drove the outcome. So that's really what we bet on with almost all of these earlier stage things. And that's what worked for us in NFTs. 
Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind a little bit. And Jeffrey just talked about how he thinks that media companies are the next going to be the next wave of companies that really benefit from NFTs. And by the way, with Dapper Labs, we saw it with, with the NBA and Top Shot. But I want to hear a little bit about sort of the media space in general, why you are specifically not investing in media companies post-Quibi, and, uh, and why not? Well, I'll start with Quibi, and then I'm going to let Sujay talk about why the media space in general for us, digital media. But, you know, Quibi for me, you know, was just this um, crazy dream ambition to create a new form of film narrative, a new way of storytelling. Um, and I got really, really excited about that, first and foremost, as someone who spent a lifetime telling stories. <laughs> and I thought this idea of movies and chapters, you know, that could be digested in bite sizes, on your phone, on the go, even today, I say those words out loud, and it still lights my, hap my happiness up. Um, and the content that was made, I have to say, actually delivered on the promise of that in an incredible way, and it's worked brilliantly for Roku. Um, we didn't have product market fit. It's just, you know, it, and whether it's product or timing or when we came to it, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not looking for an excuse out of it. I got my shot. People backed us, gave us an incredible amount of enthusiasm, support, access, money, everything we wanted and needed to get a shot at this. And it, it didn't work. And, you know, we moved very, very quickly to, to actually shut it down when it didn't work. We were returned over $600 million to our investors, which, you know, I'm, I'm humbled by its failure. I'm proud that we got out you know, as we did and that we were able to return money to, to the investors. Um, and I loved every minute of it. And so, you know, anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so, you know, lots of great lessons learned from, from, from Quibi. And as I said, I'm proud of, its, of what we did, humbled by its failure, not humiliated by it. Sujay, yeah. why don't you talk about, yeah. about the media space in general? So, so I've been investing in consumer tech companies for 15 years and had, you know, had some monster wins in that, in that time period. The thing I've observed about all of them is the ones that are most successful have the control over the relationship with the end consumer. If you are dependent on an intermediary to access the audience, almost certainly the value capture will not be going to you. It'll be going to the person who's connecting that audience with you. And I think outside of gaming, the biggest challenge in digital media over the last you know, handful of years is that the tech platforms are the ones brokering, um, brokering that relationship. And so they're making tons of money on, on the backs of you know, folks that are creating great content. But outside of kind of like almost like a margin plus model on the content creation side, it's been really, really hard to create like kind of fundamental enterprise value. Well, and you, that's the point is, is that it, I think we've now sort of transition to a place where you actually can't build that sort of enterprise value any longer because it is being captured uh, uh, by the platforms. And by the way, it's the transformation that is, uh, you know, it's cataclysmically occurring in Hollywood itself in its core business. It's where the streaming platforms are the ones who are capturing the value and people now here are working on a cost-plus basis. You're working for a fee now in it. That idea that, you know, you could hit the jackpot here and, you know, have a blockbuster and as an entrepreneur, 
make a score. It just doesn't exist today. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I could have a whole other conversation with you about the future of the movie business. But um, one thing that I think is more relevant to this conversation is the convergence of tech and Hollywood, you know, tech and, and, and movie industry, Silicon Valley and Hollywood. And I think that every year we see more and more of that convergence and that collision as the likes of, as you know, Amazon and Apple are, are bidding for sports rights as well as for content rights. But I'm wondering, you know, with all of that in mind, Jeffrey, you have such perspective on the value in the entertainment industry. Are there pockets where you see opportunity now in media, or do you think the only opportunity is in, in, uh, in gaming? Well, I think there are opportunities there, and I do think that, you know, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage anybody, you know, to, you know, who's coming with that hunger and that ambition that I had when I came to, you know, the, you know this business, and, you know, my son has followed and done it, and I would encourage today. But to me, the real great entrepreneurial spirit today I see and where the greatest innovation is going on and the talent that I am gravitated to is in digital technology. They are the next masters of the universe. They are changing every day how our lives are, you know, or they're impacting our lives in virtually everything that we do. And I just find that so stimulating and so exciting. And as Sujay said, it's the talent, right? And so I spent, you know, first couple of decades of my career on the hunt for storytellers, writers, directors, producers, people who had these fantastic ideas and would do everything and anything to bring them to life, you know? And, and that spirit exists more today around digital technology than I find in the media space. And that's what, why I've gone there. And then I guess the question is, in terms of Quibi, lessons learned structurally. You incubated Quibi. You built it. You raised all that money. How does the failure of Quibi influence your, your perspective going forward? Are you going to incubate more companies? Yeah. So we, we incubated another company called Twingate a couple of years ago with some uh, superstars from Dropbox company's totally on fire. I mean, we'll see what happens over the next 10 years, but I think there's a pretty good chance when WonderCo 1, people look at it, that'll have end up being the biggest outcome. It's also an incubation, could have been a zero. But, so, but talk we'll a little risk. bit, well, okay, but talk about Twingate, what it is. And, well, twi think of, I mean, Twingate, the, the one sentence on it is, it's the 3.0 of the corporate VPN category. So it's, uh, it'll, well, you know what? I'm going to save that for when they come out of stealth mode. Let's 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 let them let's let, we'll let them do their own story. But 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 the broader question is that we're in the risk business. You know, like Quibi was. If we if Quibi had worked, it would have been the next Netflix, and we would have owned a fourth of it. I'm fine with that. If we don't win some, it's okay. Um, I, I want to take a step back and look bigger picture at tech and what's going on right now um, in terms of valuations. We were talking backstage and you were saying that your pace of investment has slowed down. What are you seeing in terms of, of, in terms of valuations? Is there value or was there a valuation bubble? Is there? And, and where do you see things going, especially in light of all of the volatility in the world, geopolitical instability, interest rates rising, et cetera? So we... We're actually, we, you know, we're investors who actually think about investing as a financial business, not just, uh, not just a picking people and markets business. And for the last, you know, 18 months, we really slowed our investment pace. The, you know, the, the de supply demand 
around investing in, in, in kind of private companies had gotten nuts. And so the valuations outside of, you know, we invested in, in the last, you know, 18 months, we invested in a few companies. So Deal, Airtable, Figma, the thing you'll find about those companies are their category winning companies. So those are the kind of companies that almost doesn't even matter what price you're paying. They're going to go and win, you know, $100 billion market opportunities, and they're going to be just fine. But every company was being treated like a category winner. And any of us who've been around this thing know that like it's 1% that are going to be category winners. And so we really, really slowed our pace around that. Um, the, biggest single, the single biggest driver of multiple expansion has been low interest rates. The Fed more or less created a, a bubble or the conditions for a bubble. And anybody who builds a discounted cash flow model, which every investor should around every company you invest in, knows that if you change the discount rate from 7 or 8%, which is typically what you're taught to do, and you make it 2%, the multiple goes up by like 30x, right? So it's, it's a whole different valuation. So if inflation is real, which we all think it is now, rates are going to have to go up to combat that and multiples will come down. My other, my other tech question is this question of regulation. And we were talking about the State of the Union speech last night. Jeffrey, you're very influential in politics and especially in democratic politics. And I, I'm curious for your perspective on the impact of this bipartisan push to regulate big tech, what that means when you're investing in some of the smaller players, if it has an impact on your outlook. You know, I think it's a little early to tell yet because, as we know, um, there's lots of noise and then action tends to be, you know, uh, maybe less than the, you know, the, the, the threat or the promise of it, either way, whichever side of it you're on. Um, I do think that, you know, when I look at this through the sort of more personal human lens of it, there have been so many amazing transformative things that have happened for all of our lives through big tech, but it's not all great. And so finding a balance here where you continue to have uh, innovation and creativity and ambition, but also understand that there's a dark side here in it, and it has impacted our lives and our cultures in very, very, very scary ways. And whether you're a parent with children um, and seeing how this is, you know, impacting them and, and their health and wellness and mental health and wellness, it's real. And I don't think we can just sort of say, oh, well, that's the price we pay and it's okay. It's not. So where's that line? I grew up in a regulated world. Every single piece of content I ever was ever created and all, all three companies that I've been involved with and I've been in companies that you know, had standards and practices, some of which were set by third parties, some of which were set by governments, and much of which was established by ourselves. We were responsible for what we made and what those messages were. And, you know, I mean, I, I, not to make a, a joke about it, but literally I would say probably one of the single most debated things I can think of in my uh, company, DreamWorks, was when we made the original Shrek movie, and Shrek goes to rescue uh, the princess, Fiona, and he actually is asked, well, what, you know, what, what are you going to do? And he says, well, before I go rescue her, I have to go re rescue my ass. 
which as you remember was Eddie Murphy, <laughs> the donkey. <laughs> and the debate of actually using the word ass is probably, we spent more hours and more time on that because we understood it was a line, it was a red line. And we made a decision, a conscious decision that we were going to cross that red line for the, for the reasons we thought in the end were right for our brand and for our company. We understood that that was actually going to be... So, you know, we owned our stuff. I wish there was a greater ambition to own responsibility for what you do, in which case we wouldn't need government. Well, that is a whole Section 230 debate, which is currently underway and which uh, many of the platforms, including YouTube uh, and Robert Kinzel, are, are grappling with right now. Do you want to weigh in on this? No, I was just thinking how successful TikTok would be if you couldn't go beyond the line that Jeffrey just described. <laughs> uh, how times have changed. <laughs> um, uh, back to the days of Shrek. Um, I actually want to go uh, sort of circle back to this this focus on cybersecurity and what's going on in the world right now. And I, I, I want to touch on Ukraine as well. But this idea that there's an increased awareness right now of the cyber threats. And I'm wondering right. if you see those so, things correspond. Yeah, so maybe the first thing is, Sujay, do, do two minutes on Aura and what Aura does and why everybody in this room is going to end up ultimately being a subscriber to Aura and be happy about that. And then I will talk about little, the world itself and what we think it's going to bring. Yeah, so the, the, the big idea behind Aura is that every year all of us have more devices, applications, whatever, connected to the cloud or to the internet that we have no idea what's actually going on. Our privacy and security are being exposed in all sorts of different ways. Our you know, kids are being tracked in the dark web, and we sort of just know that. We expect that one day our parents are going to get a robocall, and they're just going to give away their, their bank account information. And this is just the price of being online. And every year it's going to get worse, and we're all being boiled like frogs. And that's okay, because the internet makes things better. right? Like we've sort of all accepted that. And the premise of Aura is that you can get all the good things, and we'll protect you from all those insidious things that we shouldn't have to expect as part of that price of being online. So, um, you know, this is a company that we created with the founder CEO, uh, Hari Ravichandran, who's like, one of the most spectacular people that we've ever worked with. Uh, the business is now over 100 million of ARR and growing really fast. And so we're really proud of this one. Uh, but broader, you know, our view is that, our view is that basically you, there's not enough, there's no amount of money a person, a corporation or government can spend to keep themselves safe. And as a result of that, we're just investing heavily across a whole category of things. So specifically in terms of our um, interesting trends that you know, we were, saw going on here, which actually this last year in 2021 is the first time where online digital theft actually passed uh, home uh, uh, physical uh, theft and robbery. And the inflection is you know, up and to the, you know, to the right here in, in terms of what is going on. And so our vulnerabilities have revealed themselves to be really significant. And what Aura has done is, is gone out and actually uh, looked at how to bring together uh, a dozen features and functions into one single simple so it's not that there are not solutions out there, it's there are too many of them, and none of us, I'm a digital idiot, so I'm like, well, do I need antivirus? Do I need you know, identity protection? Do I need credit card masking? Do, 
do I need a VPN? Like, well, you know, I think I need them all, in which case that's about $150 a month, and Aura does all of that for $15 a month. Um, we are out of time, but I just want to end on a note, because it does seem like there's increased awareness of cyber risk with this conflict, uh, this Russia invasion. Here, think about yes. this. If I came to your home and I broke into your home, right, what would I be able to steal from you? Some, you know, electronics, computers, television sets, maybe a little bit of jewelry, probably not very much cash. If I broke into your phone, the damage would be through the roof, yeah. okay? And so thieves are pretty smart. Um, and I do think there's an increased awareness of that because of what's going on in Russia and the, and the threat of cyber attacks. We are out of time, but my final question is just give us an update on what you're doing in Ukraine now with your employees who are there. Oh, man, it's tough. So we, we have hundreds of people in Ukraine that work for companies where, as Jeffrey described earlier, we're the largest shareholder slash builders of the business. Uh, we know these people well. I've been to Kiev, I think, six times in the last uh, pre-COVID 2019-20. And um, the humanitarian and refugee crisis is real. Uh, we're seeing it directly from the folks that work for us. Uh, Jeffrey and I donated $500,000 uh, to aid the refugees yesterday. And uh, if you're interested, we made a list of vetted organizations, our teams did. Uh, so we have eight organizations which uh, we know are outside the you know, kind of corruption in the region, that sort of thing, and are giving directly to support folks dealing with the humanitarian issues out there. And so please feel free to ping either of us and we can get you that information. I, thank you. We are out of time, but that's a great note to end on. And I think also important to acknowledge that so many of the companies in this community do have a presence there. Jeffrey and Sujay, thank you both so much for talking to us today. Thank you.